when we think of crucial Civil War engagements, Gettysburg, Antietam, Manassas come to mind, but the significance of Vicksburg may eclipse all others. President Lincoln called the city the key to the Confederacy. One often overlooked component of Ulysses Grant's larger Vicksburg campaign was the siege of Mississippi's capital city, Jackson. Welcome to Speaking of Mississippi, where we'll explore the landmark moments and overlooked stories of our state's history. I'm Chris Goodwin with the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. This podcast is made possible by the John and Lucy Shackelford Charitable Fund of the Community Foundation for Mississippi. In this episode, we talk with Jim Woodrick, author of the book, The Civil War Siege of Jackson. When he retired in 2020, Woodrick was the Deputy State Historic Preservation Officer for Mississippi. His longstanding interest in the Civil War has led to his current work as a licensed battlefield guide at Vicksburg National Military Park. Jim, the significance of the siege of Jackson was not so much in the scope of the epic battles associated with it, but because it's part of the Vicksburg campaign. Yeah, absolutely. The siege of Jackson has to be placed in context with the overall campaign to open the Mississippi River. Actually occurs after the end of the siege of Vicksburg. Of course, the much more uh, well-known and and for good reasons well-known Civil War action. But Jackson is part of that story. The campaign and siege of Jackson occurred in the second week of July, almost before the siege is ended. 1863, Grant had instructed his most trusted lieutenant, Major General William T. Sherman, to head back over to the east to the capital city of Jackson to finish the job that they had started with the siege of Vicksburg. In the Jackson area was a Confederate army under the very capable Confederate General Joseph E. Johnston. Johnston had been collecting men from the east coast of the Confederacy and from the Army of Tennessee for a couple of months, and had been rather quiet, had started moving toward Vicksburg, ostensibly to save Pemberton's army at Vicksburg. Johnston never really believed in that mission, but he had gathered about a little over 30,000 men. So this was a significant force that Grant and Sherman could not ignore. They couldn't leave Vicksburg unoccupied with a Confederate army hovering in their rear. Thus, the Jackson campaign in the second week of July. And Jackson was itself significant as the state's capital, but had been chosen for its geographic location. It was not the largest city in the state. It was not the most prosperous, but it was significant for its railroads. That's that's right. Of course, it was significant as the political capital of Mississippi. Uh, Jackson had been established in 1821. By the time of the war, it was a prosperous city. But as you said, it's not the largest city. And it's the site of secession on January 9, 1861. So from a PR perspective, perhaps, it was certainly a target of the Union military forces. But the real significance, as you've already stated, are the railroads. Jackson was one of four, I believe, uh, towns in Mississippi where there was a railroad crossing. The others would be Corinth, Meridian, and Grenada. Because of that, it was a major site of troop movements uh, for the Confederate Army, moving both north and to the east, and for cattle and corn coming over from across the Mississippi River. 
And interestingly, the last railroad connection, finishing the connection with Meridian, wasn't finished until right before the war started. So this was a relatively new thing for Jackson. It's kind of funny, the Northern Railroad was known as the uh, New Orleans, Jackson, and Great Northern Railroad. New Orleans and Jackson, of course, is easy to figure out, but it might surprise folks to learn that the Great Northern part ended at Canton, Mississippi. (laughs) (laughs) The Union soldiers on their way to Jackson were not able to take advantage of the railways, though. No, there was uh, no railroad cars available to transport them across to Jackson. And uh, in fact, it was a very difficult campaign. Johnston uh, left cavalry forces to skirmish along the Big Black River with Sherman's army, which numbered about a little over 30,000 men. Sherman's army was uh, composed of three army corps. One of those army corps was the Ninth Corps, which consisted mainly of troops from the eastern seaboard states, New York, New Hampshire, Connecticut, etc. Interestingly enough, they had only arrived in Mississippi in June of 1863 and had never been farther south than Kentucky before that. So you can imagine the kind of hell that they probably felt they had been dropped into. Yeah, Mississippi and in July is brutal in and July oppressive. is normally brutal. Right. This particular July, it was not only brutally hot, but very dry. All of the soldiers' accounts make note of that, both Confederate and Union. So in addition to the Confederate cavalry who delayed the advance of Sherman's expeditionary force, the weather was a major component. In addition to that, Johnston's men, on orders, tried to poison the ponds and the wells and the creeks that were existed by shooting cattle and other animals, drive them into the wells and everything to make the water undrinkable. But soldiers will be soldiers, and they typically drank it anyway. So the Union advance was slowed, but not stopped, of course. That gave Johnston time to fortify the city. What what did that look like as he prepared to defend Jackson? Well, there were fortifications already existing in Jackson. That comes from the Battle of Jackson, which took place on May 14, 1863. Johnston had just arrived in Jackson and had about 6,000 men on hand at the time, facing two Union Army Corps in Raymond and, in, and at Clinton. Uh, there was no way he was—that w- that would amount to about 20,000 men or so. There's no way he was going to be able to stop those troops, but there were some rudimentary fortifications at the time. By the time of July, those fortifications had not only degraded, they had not been improved to any significant uh, um, amount of work. And so while Johnston's troops were delaying, skirmishing uh, with Sherman's advancing forces, he used slaves, some citizens, and his own soldiers to build up battery positions and other earthworks around the city of Jackson. And when they were complete, uh, Johnston was well known as a defensive soldier. They were pretty formidable works stretching on the north side of the city to the Pearl River and connecting on the south again with the Pearl River. So those would include trenches. They also used cotton bales? They did. Cotton bales were used in constructing several prominent artillery positions, the most famous of which, I would say, is known as the Cotton Bale Battery. It was a salient position uh, near modern-day Baptist Hospital, and uh, it was composed of cotton bales with dirt thrown over them. 
It was a large battery position. We don't really know how many guns, interestingly, were, were there, but there was at least one large 32-pound parrot rifle in the, a siege gun, in other words. There, were, there was another battery position located on what is now known as uh, West Capitol Street. So Johnston had all the avenues covered, and to counter Sherman's force, he had four divisions of infantry. Probably the most capable of those division commanders would be a former vice president of the United States, John Cable Breckinridge. Breckinridge's division was posted on the south end of town and included among his brigades the famous Orphan Brigade, uh, which is composed of troops from Kentucky. Like Breckinridge, these soldiers had no way to go back home because Kentucky was, of course, still a Union state. These troops had volunteered for Confederate service and uh, had not been able to go back home. And they will be involved in the only real action, uh, if you will, of the siege on July 12th. So Jackson was a Confederate town. The Confederate army was making strategic decisions about its defense when it was setting up those posts. And one of the things that had to happen and that did happen was that the Confederate army burned some Jackson houses. Yeah, this and this is not anything unusual. This is somewhat standard operating procedure for armies at the time. It was to clear a field of fire. A good example is a building that is still located in the Vicksburg National Military Park, and that's the Shirley House or the White House. It was supposed to be burned, but through a series of events, the Confederates weren't able to complete that before the Union Army arrived, so that's why it's still there. But yes, the same thing happened in Jackson. A good example in Jackson is a building called the, the Cooper House, located in the uh, southwest part of Jackson, out in the rural area, if you will, because uh, there wasn't much t city to speak of. And in that case, before burning the, the building down, the home down, some of the soldiers, Confederate soldiers, helped the family move their furniture out. To spare the belongings, even though the, the house had to be Absolutely. lost. Absolutely. And I'm sure the family was not uh, too thrilled about losing their house. Who would be? But it was a military necessity. Interesting story about that particular house is that one of the items that they removed, the soldiers took and kept in their trenches. These were troops from the famous Washington Artillery, uh, the 5th Company of the Washington Artillery. It was a piano, and they took the piano and put it in their earthworks there. And during the action that I've mentioned briefly on July 12, uh, some of the soldiers were playing songs and having a, a good time before and after the engagement. Uh, and that, that piano still exists. It's now in the Confederate Hall Museum in New Orleans. And I'd sure like to see that come yeah. back to Mississippi someday. What a, what a great story. Jackson's Museum of Mississippi History covers the area's earliest days to contemporary times. One gallery is devoted to Mississippians in the military, and it uses artifacts to tell the story of their involvement beginning with the Revolutionary War and continuing through the Civil War, the World Wars, and Desert Storm. One story in the museum brings together the home front and battlefront during the Civil War siege of the capital city. It centers around a garnet necklace that was stolen from a home by a soldier in the 17th Iowa Infantry. He wrote to his sister about the, quote, plundering of Jackson, unquote. And almost 150 years later, his descendants returned the necklace to Mississippi, donating it and the letter. Go to mmh.mdah.ms.gov to learn more 
about the museum and Mississippi's rich history. So the Confederates encircle the modest-sized downtown and are prepared to defend. The Union troops make their way across. And on July 12th is really the, the bloodiest battle of the Siege of Jackson. Yes. Uh, Sherman's three corps arrive on July 10, and the first indication they have is that Johnston has not retreated. They were hoping he would have, is that one of the Confederate batteries opened on the, the lead units on West Capitol Street, known at the time as the Clinton Road. Sherman immediately spread his forces out to encircle the city, the Ninth Corps on the north end of town, the 13th Corps on the west and southwest end of town, or southeast corner of of the city, his own former corps in the center. As you mentioned, on July 12 was the only bloody action, if you will. There There was fighting throughout the siege, but on July 12, a brigade of Union troops under the command of Colonel Isaac Pugh marched under orders, marched across Lynch Creek, and toward the uh, position held by Breckinridge's Confederate division. It was an ill-timed and ill-thought assault. Pew objected, but his division commander ordered him to move forward anyway, and the result was that out of his 880 men or so in his brigade, more than 465 were casualties, Mm. which is more than 50% in about an hour. Uh, one of those men, one of the one of the most interesting things that I found is the story of Sergeant George Poundstone, who was in the, I believe, the 41st Illinois. He was a uh, soldier who was shot at least three times, including a piece of an artillery shell. Nonetheless, he tried to save the unit's flag by stuffing it in his jacket. He survived remarkably, for 11 days, but was captured. Uh, The flag, of course, was also captured. Poundstone's bloody flag survived the war and wound up at the War Department, and then in the 1880s was given back to the state of Illinois. And that flag has, in just recent years, been restored and is on display in, in the library of George Poundstone's hometown, Streeter, Illinois. So, Fascinating story of a true relic of the horrible, bloody action on July 12. And again, I'd love to see that flag come back to Mississippi someday for a visit. So the action took place, the horrible, bloody action took place on the 12th, but the suffering on that field lingered. Yes, indeed. For whatever reason, Sherman would not call for a truce to bury the dead or remove the wounded following Pew's brigade attack. In fact, it was another day and a half or so before the Confederates asked for a truce because, and I don't want to be too descriptive here, but in the hot July sun, bodies began to stinketh. So they they asked for a truce, and Sherman accepted for a couple of hours uh, to bury the dead. By that time, the bodies had decomposed to such an extent that they were not movable. The Confederate soldiers uh, went out and used long hooks that they would use to handle cotton bales to pull the dead into some ditches. Those men remained in those graves until 1870 when they were 
reinterred to the military cemetery in Vicksburg. After that terrible, bloody encounter, there was constant skirmishing around the Siege of Jackson, but no other large actions on that level, but all sorts of big armaments being used to fling heavy explosive objects into the city and and out back towards the Union side. That's exactly right. And some of the heaviest skirmishing took place on the northern fringe of the city with John G. Park's Ninth Corps and uh, the division under William W. Loring, who's an interesting bird in and of himself. One of the most interesting tidbits about Jackson was that where the University Hospital is located today was the state insane asylum, and it was a very prominent and very significant building that the state of Mississippi had constructed in the 1850s. And when Park's Union forces occupied what was known as Insane Asylum Ridge, they not only took control of the building, but the insane asylum patients were still in the building. The Confederates left them there. So you have this odd confluence of Union soldiers talking to these patients who were dressed in white gowns, and and, uh, one in particular was cited as spouting a bunch of gibberish, and one of the Union soldiers commented that he must have been a politician in his previous life. But uh, a couple of Confederate artillery rounds actually hit the insane asylum building during the siege. But yes, there were what was called a couple of reconnaissance in force. In other words, efforts by the Union Army to make sure the Confederates were still there, probes, if you will, to see what level of resistance was still there. And up until July 16, Johnston was definitely there and full of fight. But on the 16th, he decided to save his army and abandon the city. Yes. What was happening for several days, Johnston had learned that there was an artillery resupply coming from Vicksburg with heavy artillery rounds. When Sherman arrived, he really had only a limited supply of lighter uh, artillery ammunition. But with the heavy artillery, he, he could really begin a bombardment of Jackson and force the Confederates to leave. One significant difference that I need to point out between Vicksburg and Jackson is that in Vicksburg, of course, the Confederates were hemmed in by the Mississippi River, and there was no way across that river because not only of its width, but the Union Navy, of course, was there. In Jackson, the Pearl River was fordable, and there was no Union Navy there, so Johnston always had a backdoor exit. When Johnston learned and made several attempts to intercept the supply wagons, when he learned that he had failed in those efforts, he prepared to abandon the city on the on the night of the 16th. And he did very skillfully so, although there were some Union soldiers who tried to tell their superiors that something was going on. Most did not know that the Confederates had abandoned the city until the next morning. And I also need to point out that Jackson was not the only place where there was action during the Jackson campaign. In accordance with Grant's orders, Sherman had sent several cavalry expeditions north and south of Jackson to do more damage to the railroad infrastructure. One went as far down as Brookhaven, uh, where they burned several railroad depots and bridges. That was a fairly minor action, but in Canton, the Federals sent two different expeditions, one that was cavalry only that failed to, to get to Canton. The second one 
involved a brigade of Union infantry, and that one succeeded in getting to Canton and wrecking the railroad infrastructure. One interesting side note is that that brigade was largely composed of German immigrants, and most of them spoke no English. And along the way to Canton, they burned a place called Calhoun Station. It's just a, a stop on the railroad. Uh, Calhoun Station would later be re-inhabited around the turn of the century by more German immigrants from Indiana and redesignated, if you will, as Gluckstadt. So German immigrants both destroyed and re-inhabited that area. Canton, unlike Jackson, and we can discuss this in a second, uh, was not destroyed, only the railroad facilities. Sherman, of course, is known as a firebug, and in many ways he earns that honestly, but not in Canton. They posted guards to save the homes and the businesses in Canton. But Grant had specifically directed Sherman to wreak havoc with the railways. Absolutely. Sherman did not trust his own cavalry to get the job done. That's, that's why he sent infantry with them. Uh, he had an interesting uh, relationship with his own Union cavalry, but, but they did get the job done as evidence of that. And, they, and they, they wrecked the railroads around Jackson, even as far as Brandon after the siege had ended. And those railroads would not be put back in working order until after the war in the Jackson area. There are relics from that that are still around and, yes, and earned his name. There's a significant relic in the Mississippi Museum of History, and it's a what's known as a Sherman necktie. It's a railroad piece of railroad railing, if you will, that's been twisted into what looks like a, a bow tie. And they would do that by heating these up on a large pile of rails, wooden rails, or bending them around a tree or some other object. And because the Confederates didn't have any manufacturing facilities remaining, they couldn't undo these. So uh, as far as I know, even though that was something that was repeated over and over after Jackson, as far as I know, that's the only actual piece of a Sherman necktie, as it was called, in existence. So we're very lucky to have that. And it was recovered from the Pearl River. So days of bombardment took its toll on the capital city. Yes, there were several fires that started as a result of the bombardment, but because Sherman never got to use his heavy artillery ammunition, because Johnston evacuated before he could, most of the damage to Jackson took place from soldiers on both sides. The Confederates did some damage to the stores and, and houses because young men with guns typically do foul things to <laughs> property, but when I began working on this book, I was convinced that the stories of Chimneyville were exaggerated, that the damage was not that great. In looking at the evidence, I had to determine that it was, in fact, truly damaged to a large degree, and that Chimneyville, which is the nickname that was attributed to Jackson soon after the siege by some newspaper correspondents, was absolutely earned. Much of the downtown business district was burned including the famous uh, area known as uh, Spengler's Corner, right across from the state capitol building, uh, now the old capitol. The capitol was not burned. The Jackson City Hall was not burned, nor the governor's mansion. So there were some areas that were saved because they were usable by the occupying Union Army. Sherman set up in the governor's mansion, didn't he? He did. In fact, he hosted a party for his conquering 
Corps commanders on the night of the 17th, I believe that was the date, but uh, yes, they had a dinner party at the governor's mansion. But much of the rest of Jackson was was indeed destroyed. Now, there was also a lot of destruction uh, at the turn of the 20th century when people who owned these old houses wanted to get something new, and so they tore them down. That's just the way we do things in, in America. And, and much of what was burned in Jackson was rebuilt. There's no question that uh, the city rebuilt itself extensively by 1869 when we have a panoramic photograph of the downtown area, which looks for all intents like a, a city. And that's that's where the idea came that Jackson had not been destroyed as much as thought previously. I believe, and I hope I proved it with my book, that it really was. There was a lot of destruction. The book's great. One of the strong things, uh, one of the strong aspects of it is you make the point that although Jackson has grown and changed in the century and a half since then, that the layout has not changed so much that you can't get to these places, that even though there aren't necessarily many markers and signs to guide you, you can get to where these actions took place, where these sieges were. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's no question that Jackson is not a battlefield that one can visit and look at beautiful landscapes. It's an urban battlefield, Yeah, uh, much like uh, Atlanta is today. There's not a lot to see in Atlanta, but uh, unlike Atlanta, Jackson has not exploded and changed to such a degree, as you've mentioned, that you can't at least see the basic outlines of the siege uh, lines where they occurred. There are traces. Fortification Street, for example, is named Fortification Street because the Confederate lines were located just south of that avenue of approach. The governor's mansion, the old capital, as I've mentioned, uh, the city hall are all antebellum buildings, as well as the home of the wartime mayor, uh, Mayor Charles Manship, is still in Jackson. But the basic structure, the, the layout of the streets is the same, and I hope Uh, someday that there'll be a way for people to visit these sites and at least know that they're on the ground. That would be something I'd really love to see. The book is The Civil War Siege of Jackson, Mississippi. Jim Woodrick, thank you for being with us today and talking about that action. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Speaking of Mississippi is a joint production of the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and the Community Foundation for Mississippi. On other episodes this season, we'll talk about the desegregation of the capital city's swimming pools, the 1878 yellow fever epidemic, and the 1970 Jackson State shootings. If you'd like to learn more about the Civil War siege of Jackson, you can find a video of Jim Woodrick discussing the topic as part of the History is Lunch series on the Mississippi Department of Archives and History YouTube channel, Facebook page, and website. This season, our opening music comes from a 1942 recording by Sid Hempel, the most storied black musician in the Mississippi Hills in the early 20th century. Our closing music was recorded in 1939 by Tishomingo County fiddler John Hatcher and included on the 1985 Mississippi Department of Archives and History release, Great Big Yam Potatoes. I'm Chris Goodwin, and thank you for listening to Speaking of Mississippi. Mississippi.